This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. You're listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Welcome to today's show. I'm Ross Romano, and I am pleased to be joined by Sarah Strong and Gigi Butterfield. Sarah has taught math in grades 6 through 12 at High Tech High in San Diego, and she also works for the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, teaching math methods and advanced math pedagogy courses. And Gigi is currently a screenwriting major at Loyola Marymount University and a former student of Sarah's at High Tech High. She's hoping to go into comedy writing, and as she writes, there's no better way to start a comedy career and with a dissertation on the reimagining of math education. So there you go. She's funny. So we're going to discuss their wonderful book, Dear Math, co-authored together and published by Times 10 Publications. Um, Sarah and Gigi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So I want to start, you know, the two of you, as I referenced in my intros, Gigi, you were a student of Sarah's and in fact, a student for all four years of high school because of various reasons with jobs opening up and shifting around and the pandemic. So that's, of course, a a rare circumstance. But uh, even despite that, uh, of course, you had other classmates who went through the years with you, but there was something here regarding the way that the two of you worked together that led you to eventually see this as a potential collaborate on this book. Can you tell us a bit, uh, and I also start with you, Sarah, and then Gigi, you can add to this about your relationship as an educator and student and how you came to this point of actually collaborating on this book. Sure. So Gigi, as you've alluded to, was in my class starting her freshman year, my math class, and I've been teaching math to freshmen for a really long time. That was my favorite grade to teach. I didn't want to leave it. And so we met and um it, it was like sort of a normal-ish I guess teacher student relationship at that point and except at high tech high I think we actually value teacher student relationships really highly and because of some of our structural elements we tend to have a lot closer relationships with our students here we have a lot smaller class sizes a smaller student load so we really do get the opportunity to know our students 
better, but usually not to the point where we write a book together. <laughs> it was in Gigi's sophomore year that we, I did a project where, where I ended up teaching sophomores for, because the teacher left and we ended up doing a little mini activity around writing Dear Math Letters. And Gigi's was so interesting and provocative that it spurred this conversation that lasted months and then subsequently years to the point where people who were around us were like, y'all should just write this down in a book. I don't know if they wanted to stop hearing us talk about it or if they thought it was like so interesting that it should be in a book. But either way, we wrote it down into a book and it, it actually was a really amazing process to get to, to write a book about math teaching with a student that elevates hundreds and possibly thousands of student voice throughout the whole thing. So that's our relationship and how the book was birthed from it. Right. And Gigi, probably even more so, it wasn't exactly in your plans to end up co-authoring a book with your teacher, any of your teachers, but you know, how did, how did it come about to you? Because it sounds like maybe the two of you, you know, eventually were on the same page and said, oh, maybe we should do this. Yeah, absolutely. It was not something in my plan at all. I, for my whole life, up until about eighth grade, I really loved math, or so I thought. I thought I really loved math because I was told that I was good at it by outside authoritative parties, usually. And that validation felt really good, usually in the form of an A+. And so I thought, oh, I'm good at this. I can do it quickly. I can do it quicker than most of my peers. So I must like it then, even though it's not very thought provoking for me or interesting. I guess that means I like it because I'm good at it. And then in eighth grade, I stopped being so good at it. I had a test and I failed it over and over and I just really couldn't get the concepts. And I was like, oh, okay, I hate it. Now I hate math because I already didn't like it that much. I didn't find it that interesting. And now I'm not even good at it. So I'd completely loathe it. And then I got to ninth grade and I had Sarah Strong as my teacher. And she taught me math in a way I'd never been taught it before with less of an emphasis on correctness and arbitrary quickness and more of a focus on curiosity and creativity and sense-making and having it be genuinely pertinent to your outside life. And then I thought, oh, this is what math is supposed to be. I do actually like math. I actually love math. So then for that entire year and sophomore year, and then after that's where the story picks up, the math classroom was kind of like my solace, my safe space, which I never expected. And I don't think many teenagers around America are reveling and being able to go to their math class, which is unfortunate. And it is how impactful that math class was for me and how much I loved it. That's the reason that when people came to us and said, hey, you should write a book about this whole dear math thing you wrote, that I was pretty on board for it. Because even as someone who is not aiming to be a mathematician, math and the way it was taught to me has been so important in my life just as a student. And I feel so lucky that I was able to be taught this way that really I hope everyone can be taught the way I was taught one day. Yeah. And, and so we'll circle back to the Dear Math letters momentarily and what those are. And but listeners, as you hear, you know, the name of the book is Dear Math and the chapters are lined up kind of across the spectrum of students' feelings toward math as a subject. Um, it starts out with things like Dear Math, you are dreadful, you are unnecessary, you're intimidating, and then it eventually gets to your beautiful, fun, useful, right? And right in the middle is this Dear Math, I am fraudulently fond of you. And this, this is what Gigi was just 
talking about, which is the idea that you like it because you're good at it, or you think you like it because you're good at it, uh, and you're not necessarily thinking about it beyond that, uh, which also really fits in, you know, really nicely into discussions around growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And certainly the challenges of once you get to the high school level, students' mindsets are really well-developed at that time. (laughs) So if you have this kind of fixed mindset of yourself as you think something is good or you like it, because contingent upon the fact that you're good at it. And then once you start to doubt and question, okay, actually, maybe I'm not that good at this now, it must mean that I don't like it anymore. But talk about that, Gigi, because you referenced this about you suffered from this affliction, so to speak, of being fraudulently fond of math and then having to revisit that mindset and what that meant and what was your actual relationship to the subject once you got into subject matter that was challenging you in a new way it was it was very challenging at first and i even before attending high tech high i went to high tech elementary and middle schools and so a focus on a growth mindset is something i was really used to but it was shocking to me how difficult it was to apply that to math specifically because it has so many fixed connotations to it already. Like you're a math person or you're not. And so even having learned how to focus on that growth mindset, it was very shocking how difficult it was for me. Even having Sarah as my tutor, my mentor, it still took me a while. And it was very powerful to learn that just like in everything in math, we are a lot more critical of ourselves than anyone else ever is. Everyone knows the feeling, I'm sure you do, of sitting in math class and someone calls on you or you're about to answer and you're like, I don't know this. That's so scary. That's so embarrassing. Everyone's going to, everyone's going to judge me for it. And everyone else is thinking about going to lunch or how scary it is when someone calls on them. And so really having this sort of math catharsis with myself. It was very healing to work with Sarah and go back over some of my math traumas over the years, for instance, that test that I failed over and over and be able to forgive myself and realize that was just me learning. That was not me being wrong or bad or not a good mathematician. There's no such thing as good or bad. And yeah, it was very cathartic. It was very healing. And you know, one of the earlier chapters as well addresses math being hierarchical with respect to, in particular, the way in which it's difficult for students to view and evaluate their own competency or skill level growth independent of how they perceive themselves in relationship to their peers. And how did you experience that as a student? Did you feel as though you were always stuck viewing yourself through the lens of, okay, I think I'm smarter than or not as smart as my classmates right now? Or were you able to disaggregate that and just look at your own growth? Or is that something that maybe you learned once you were in Sarah's class? Absolutely. I was viewing math as hierarchical prior to Sarah's class. It was a sort of constant comparison every time I was in the four walls of the math classroom of, did that person do it faster than me? Did I get it right before they, did I get it more right than them? And that amount of pressure is not sustainable for fostering learning because when you're so focused on what other people are doing and how quickly you're doing it, you're not really learning the content at all. And then in in Sarah's class, the uh, practice that she implemented to try to combat that hierarchy was called belongingness buddies, which we talk about in the book. And so that was 
basically randomly assign people, peers, for each student who they then would like sit with throughout the day in that class. When someone was absent, for instance, you would text your belongingness buddy to get the work back. You would have them check your work. You would do a lot of math work with this random person. And in doing that and having random table groups every day was pretty quickly introduced to all of the different skills math holds that aren't as often celebrated as quickness, for instance. I would work with people that were maybe not as fast, but were amazing at asking questions or people that were incredible at organizing their thoughts into graphs and tables or people that were really skeptical and really getting to the bottom of what this answer actually means. In tackling math problems with people coming at it from all different angles and with all different skills, it really taught me that the hierarchy is false because it's there's not just one way to be good at math. So you can't really competently compare yourself to other people. And that was a really powerful practice. Yeah. And and obviously all these concepts are interrelated. And Sarah, another one is that math is intimidating. Right? And a lot of that relates to not just the subject matter, but it's the intimidation factor of feeling like everybody else gets this and I don't. And I, you know, and I, I don't know how to face it. And for <laughs> listeners who are familiar, for example, with the movie Goodwill Hunting, right? The MIT professor had this problem that was supposed to be basically unsolvable and uh, none of the MIT students knew how to solve it. And they weren't, it wasn't really that intimidating at that point because nobody knew how to do it. And then all of a sudden when this random guy, who's not even a student at the school solves it, then the students are intimidated. Even the professor himself is intimidated, right? Cause now they're thinking, okay, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was because somebody else knows something that I don't know. You know, how do you address that feeling, that in intimidation factor and just understand that's not the point, right? <laughs> the point is not how you, how much you think you know or can do right now compared to somebody else. It's just about how much you know right now compared to how much you're going to know later. Yeah, intimidation does play a really big role in math class, probably in like a lot of spaces of learning or there's like this sense of I'm going to prove myself to all these other people. Um, when I was thinking about combating intimidation in my class, I have observed a lot of people try to reduce intimidation by actually like lowering their expectations of what they ask students to do. Like, I'm not going to have students share out because maybe they'll be intimidated. They don't want to speak up. And I thought, oh no, that, that is not how I want to approach intimidation. I know whoever's doing a lot of the talking in class is doing a lot of the learning. So I need students speaking and sharing their thinking a lot. Also not being intimidated while they're doing it. So the routine that I sort of ideated on and then co-developed with students through the years is that we talk about in the book is called daily discourse. It's like a warm-up routine where every day there's like something on the board for you to write about at first. And then you will every day share your thinking with your peers at your table. And then frequently you'll share your thinking out loud with the whole class in a discussion that's being led by one of your peers. And so I wanted to actually up the ante that every single day you're going to share something about mathematics with others in the first 10 minutes of class, just as a baseline. And it's interesting because I think because of the frequency and the structure and the like normalizing that you can share things you know or you think you 
you know, or that's a question, any of those things are really valid things to share. It lowered the intimidation because it's just, it's not like oh, once a week I'm going to get called on and I better know something. It's like, oh, every day I'm going to talk about something math related. And I found, I think the students found it to be an important part of overcoming some of that intimidation and just normalizing the, oh yeah, we talk about math in here and I share my half-baked ideas, things I'm sure of, and it's all good either way. You write about things being very collaborative and being more of a team sport right, than an individual sport in that sense of belonging. And I think that relates to the other end of the, when, when something's hierarchical, there's the students that are at the upper end of that hierarchy you're feeling. And there's competition in high school, right? Everybody's competing because they want to have the best grades. They want to get to the best college. In a lot of ways, you know, math just seems to, to feed into that for, for whatever reason, where there's a feeling of maybe it's because, you know, it's a zero sum game, right? Everybody can't be good at this. So if I'm good at it, what's my incentive to care how anybody else does or to help them or to collaborate with them because I'm doing great. You know, and you write about in the intro how there's growing pains with the approach as you were developing it, right? And not every student necessarily responded to it. And even though you don't get into a tremendous amount of detail at that point about who those students are, I surmise it might be some of those students that are in that bucket that are saying, the way it's going is working fine for me. I'm doing well. I, I, either I think it's easy or I just think it's working or I'm doing well, I don't really need to do it differently. And, you know, why should I, why should I? And so how do you address that end of it to I think it's clear to the students who are struggling with the traditional ways of doing it, how they're incentivized to try something different or how that inclusive belonging approach makes them feel more comfortable. But what about the students who feel as though like I'm good the other way? I can speak to that some. And then Gigi was probably like, belongingness buddies with some people with this mindset before so she could speak to how some of those conversations unfolded but I think I talk in the intro about like I hope that any student that was feeling like why do I have to think about things differently things are going fine like still felt in the spirit of all of this dear math work heard and supported by me and that I like genuinely wanted to provide them opportunities for learning that felt deep and meaningful and rich no matter what, and that I wasn't going to let them just stay status quo, but I was going to like push on their thinking a little bit here and there. And one specific story comes to mind, and this more connects to the routine I talk about in the oppressive chapter, the like iterative assessment thing where a student was in this mindset, like you're talking about like what I am fast and I am right. And people should listen to me. And I don't want to tell anyone else what I think, because then they might come close to being as awesome as I am or something. And so on our Friday assessments, the students are supposed to like generate all of their thinking about the prompts on the quiz. And this student wrote like hundreds uh, or a hundred and some like mathematically correct ideas on his paper. Hooray. They were all like in a row. He like made a table about a function and it was like, Hey, cool. That's really great. And the girl who was sitting next to him actually probably only had written like 20 mathematically correct ideas. This was a phrase we use when we talk about our assessments. But what she had done was she had like taken a different lens to the table and noticed it was a quadratic function. And she had noticed that the rate of change was changing consistently, which is actually connected to the idea of derivative. 
Um, but she, she was only a freshman. And I love this example because she wasn't trying to go fast. She wasn't trying to be right. She was just being curious. And in doing that made this like really beautiful discovery. And I leveraged that story with this other student, not to tell him like she did it better than you, but to say, hey, look, in the time you were doing this, your colleague also did this. And he actually, in his quest to like be the best, started to realize that there can be tremendous value mathematically, even in his <laughs> pursuits to be the best, to like slowing down and thinking more deeply and curiously about things. And so he sort of like inched along in his journey in that way. And that would be my hope for all students is that they would just keep inching along from wherever they're starting to feel like they're truly developing and growing as whoever the mathematician is that they hope to be. Yeah. What, what was your experience, Gigi, with with the, that competitive mindset and how that kind of eventually evolves or doesn't with respect to this approach? I would say definitely asking high schoolers to stop being competitive is not always going to work. And that's a pretty hard endeavor to take on. But I can speak to the fact that I was that kid for a while that was coming to class and like wearing battle paint almost and thinking, okay, I'm, I got to be the best one right now. But the thing is, when you're doing anything like that alone and with so much pressure put onto it, pretty quickly gets very boring and lonely. And so when you're just like blazing through math problems as fast as you can. Your heart is pounding out of your chest because you're worried the person behind you is doing it faster. It gets really boring. You're, you don't care at all about what the math is regarding in the slightest. And that redundancy gets really tiring. And then you get tired of trying to go that quickly. And then you get tired of being the first one done even. And everyone else is working together. You look around and you see people collaborating and doing things like finding the second difference and actually having these epiphany-esque moments. And you burn out almost, or at least I did. And you realize it's not really worth it anymore to be competing that much. No one is going to come give you a prize for being the fastest in the class. And it's so much more beneficial to slow down and think about what you're doing and hey, ask the advice of the person next to you. And that's how you're going to actually become a more competent mathematician all around. Right. And yeah, and as we, we think about how across the curriculum, students should be refining, developing real world skills and skills for success in life. If you don't know how to collaborate, it doesn't preclude you from having success, but it really limits your options because you're going to only be successful at things that you can do alone and by yourself versus being able to work with teams of folks and, and learn new things as you go, right? And eventually you're going to stagnate probably at a certain point if you're unwilling to open yourself up to the fact that everybody knows something you don't. Can I add one thing onto that? Something unique about our schools is that our math classes are untracked. So all the ninth graders take integrated math one together and all the sophomores take integrated math two and so on. And something that could conceivably happen in this sort of related to this mindset is like rigor could get lost along the way or a perception of rigor as defined by broader society is like moving ahead in your mathematical journey. And so I do want to share that at our, in light of that, we do 
try to make these really collaborative classes where everyone's supporting each other, but also for students who do just genuinely like thinking about math in all of their spare time, we want to have opportunities for them to keep doing that. We certainly wouldn't want to be holding anyone back. So having math clubs, having opportunities to take college classes in math are both really critical pieces of the program so that there is this like regular shared communal experience, but also, hey, do you want to keep doing this all the time? Great, go for it. Gigi had a student, I don't know if he was ever in your class, but he would like read math textbooks for fun on his own. <laughs> I, we, I tell a story of, we tell a story of him in the book, but he still like found tremendous value in coming to class and talking to his peers about what they were thinking. And so it's, it's never going to be that everyone's the same or like on the same quote unquote quote level. It's just that there people find genuine value in learning alongside one another and recognize that everyone is bringing something to the table. And when you really think about it, that does sound fun, right? <laughs> so let's go back. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about some of these specifics, but these dear math letters, right? And so Sarah, tell us about where the idea originally came from and then how you, of course, adapted it for math class and started to implement that as something that you wanted your students to do. Sure. I was trying to come up with some like metaphor-esque project for my students to do related to the topics of similarity and right triangle trig and geometric modeling. And I was like, ooh, there's like this concept of dilation, like something's expanding. And then in trig, you could like use shadows to model things. And in geometric modeling, there's like cross sections. And I thought all of these were like really nice words to tell stories of who we are. I thought, I want my students to understand who they are using some of these words. And then we'll like, of course, like following our mathematical learning about these things and then taking this, this metaphoric stance to like better understand ourselves. So I was de developing this identity project for lack of better word. And I was tuning it with one of my colleagues because that's what we do at Hatekai. We tune our projects and she wrote, had her students write dear books or something like that. She had her students write letters to like books or to like understand their relationship with reading. I think she's like, Ooh, you could write dear math letters. And I was like, Oh, that's brilliant. Yes. And then I started researching and I found of course, like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant did Dear Basketball. So this is like a type of writing that has been used frequently to understand your relationship to something. And so, yeah, that's where the idea birthed. And then in that project that ended up coming to fruition with Gigi her sophomore year, the students wrote the letter and then they, um, that was one of the few times that I actually had them regularly, had my students regularly revisit and revise the letter as we were moving along, because that's what the project was designed to do is like, how do you keep developing a better understanding of yourself through this revision of this letter? Most other years, I would just have the students write the letter and read it. And then that was where it kind of ended. Yeah. And uh, Gigi, do you remember your reaction the first time you were assigned to write one of these letters? Was it unfamiliar to you? <laughs> you know, I mean, eventually, of course, you became used to it. But do you remember what it was like the first time this came up? I do remember it was very unfamiliar, which was intimidating to reference one of our chapters. But I will say I may have been partially in the minority here as I really love writing. So I was like, yes, a chance to write in this class. I'm so excited. So initially I, it was it was unfamiliar. I was tentative, but I was 
excited. And I actually was in the class of that other teacher that Sarah was referencing. And so I had just finished writing deer reading or, or whatever it was. So I was feeling like, you know, this is different from math class, but I know how to do this. Should be fine. I love writing. And then when I started writing, I'll use that word again. It was so cathartic. It was like a therapy session I was having with my Google Doc page. And that was actually more intimidating to me as that was kind of flowing out of me than the initial announcement that we would be writing that. It was it was kind of scary to edit it and then turn it in because it felt very vulnerable. But I, that vulnerability is, I think, what was a key aspect to its efficacy as an assignment. Yeah. Sarah, did, did you find that you relatively quickly began to get quote unquote good data or did it take some time and some revisions to the approach? I feel like certainly this is true of math, but it's true of a lot of things in academic subjects. It's not necessarily that hard to get students to talk about the things they don't like, but maybe a little harder to kind of get a sense of, okay, what would be better? What would you prefer? And you certainly can get there, but it you know might take a couple of different ways of posing the question or some different prompts to figure out, okay, what are we, you know, what am I missing here? Because I certainly understand this and this, right? But what I'm trying to figure out is how do we, and how do I tailor it? Because obviously these are personal letters this is everybody's individual perspective toward their relationship to math in this case and probably it's not wholly independent from their relationship to schooling overall but how did that go as you went and you tried different ways to elicit specificity i think probably in, in your students perspectives hmm. i think the first year i did it doing it with this project and re-looking at it a bunch of times was actually the thing that enabled me to hone the types of questions and be able to push students in that idea of specificity because the students actually that year had to read each other's letter and with a specific lens for when that student experienced a moment, what did I call it? Like a traumatic moment or a break. I forget the term, fracture, a fracture in their math identity. And then part of the project was to go find someone in that grade and then support a student in that grade as part of your own like healing and therapy basically. And so it was through them reading each other's letter and like trying to identify certain pieces of it that I was able to start seeing some of these trends that actually popped up in the book because I was getting a lot of eyes on a lot of letters. And so I think that was really helpful. And then the fact that they were revising the letter, it helped hone the questions once again, because I was like, wait, these letters aren't yet showing your mathematical strengths. Oh, you think you don't have any? Ah, well, <laughs> let's find some. And so we generated this list of mathematical strengths of being mathematical. And you have to look back through your work and find evidence of where you did that. So you're like broadening the language that students can use to describe themselves as mathematicians. And you can hear even when Gigi talks, she has a lot of anchor points for like what it means to be mathematical that are beyond right and wrong. And I think that could be more frequent in our classes. Right. Which of the, if you think through, you know, what the chapter titles are, so those are kind of buckets, right, of feelings and sentiments. I'm wondering from the teacher's perspective, which 
is the most frustrating <laughs> and the, the one that stands out to me is not frustration at the student but frustration at the way math is often taught and the you know and the way okay by the time students get to high school if they still think this because somebody hasn't explained it to them all the way the one that stands out to me is you are unnecessary because that comes up so often with math and it's like yeah we don't do a good enough job of explaining how math functions in things that happen across your life cycle. And when you're in school, it just seems like, okay, like what does this have to do with anything? If you're, if you're not being taught in that way, which I imagine could be frustrating as a high school teacher to say, oh man, do I, I have to really go back to the, the drawing board here and really start to inform my students about that. So you may agree with that, or you may have another one that stands out, but what do you think? Certainly unnecessary is most common, I guess, or it comes up most frequently or dread is sometimes the hardest to read because it's like very strong negative feelings. And I think I say it this way in the book or somewhere like sometimes I get a little nervous when I'm about to read the letters because I know there's going to be so much negativity coming at me or not so much, but a fair amount of people with like really strong feelings about the thing that I'm about to work with them on for a year. And so you have to be like ready and excited to to hear those things. But so unnecessary is frequent dread is like heavy. But then the thing that showed up almost most frequently that I think was a surprise to Gigi and I was the hierarchical one. It was almost like unanimously named in the letters, like almost everyone had some story to tell that involved hierarchical thinking. And I don't think once you we started noticing it, we're like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. But it, I hadn't yet noticed that as frequently as I did when we started reading these letters together, we were like, oh my gosh, dang. Yeah. Gigi, from your POV, if you could choose one of the positive sentiments that you would like, if you could only choose one, <laughs> that you would like every student to feel toward math, which one would you prioritize? That's a really good question. Let me think about it for a second. I think useful is, is a close second contender, but I think I would pick powerful probably because feeling empowered in the math classroom was such an amazing feeling and something that so few students I feel get to experience, which is really sad. And I do think that when someone actually views math as being powerful, they're almost innately then viewing it as being useful and poignant and that they're seeing themselves as a powerful math entity that's capable of tackling all of these big world issues or even personal issues or just the problem on the board. But yeah, I think I'd be powerful. So what have you both, what's the top thing that each of you have learned from this process, not just from working on the book, but just Sarah, from having this very intentional structured plan to listen to students, right? To hear their perspectives and to be able to adapt to their perspectives. And then Gigi as a, as an individual student, but also as a member of a class, right? Seeing the effect it can have on your peers when this is a priority. And, you know, I know that every school is going to be a little different and there's some unique qualities to high tech high that may have made this work differently than would look everywhere. But in general, the concept is schools should be better and do more to listen to students and often they don't do as much. So let's use that as the premise. And so, you know, what's the top thing you learned? I think for me, it, we end the book with the chapter called Par Math or Paradoxical. And that was like a really important 
way to synthesize everything we had learned from the process. And it was that it was actually like getting over the idea that all of my students would love math all the time. It was more like, actually, the work is around helping students feel okay when they feel all of these other feelings, because they're going to, they're not ever going to love it all the time. They're going to hate it and they still feel dread. And I still feel dread every now and again. Gigi probably does. She's had a college math class. And also to be like, oh, I'm feeling dread right now. That's okay. Because guess what? I have these tools and skills and like ways of processing my feelings that can turn this into something productive. And I can actually hold my dread and my feelings of power together, even though that might feel like a paradox. I can have both of those things and proceed with my math identity still intact. And so that's the biggest learning for me. And I think that is like an important piece of like just being a human being, not just math class, but like having, being able to hold two paradoxical things together and be okay in it is, is huge. I really, I echo that quite a bit. And also I think the biggest learning point for me has been that this is a pretty radical switch that we are really back in here and that you have to be patient with a lot of people in trying to advocate for a change that feels that uncomfortable. I evidently really love talking about math. I want to talk about math all the time with people and I'm a sophomore in college and I want to talk about math learning. So I'm not always the life of the party. And sometimes people want to sit and listen for a couple minutes and add in their thoughts. And I ask them about their math stories and I get really excited. And sometimes people are like, why are you talking to me about math right now? I just, I don't want to do this. And I think I really had to learn that sometimes you got to play the long game with people and you have to go, okay, no problem. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later. And you just chip away at that sort of toxic shell that everyone was hiding in. So yeah, really being patient, I think has been my biggest learning curve with this. Excellent. So for our last question, as we wrap up, we have a lot of our listeners are principals, assistant principals, folks in school leadership. And of course, a lot of the ideas and practices shared in the book go beyond math and beyond just even the classroom. And a lot of them are facilitated and enabled by the freedom that the teachers have in high tech high. So if you could have just one message that you would want a school leader to take away from the book, what would it be? It could be something like trust your teachers, listen to your students, et cetera. But if there was one thing that you would say, all right, if I could have a school leader learn one thing from this, here's like the main takeaway. Trust the students you just said, but listen to the students is really important. But I also think like ask interesting questions so that the things you're listening to are interesting to listen to. So it has to like, we have to evolve in the types of questions that we're asking students to talk about so that when we listen, we get to hear things that are interesting. And also for like administrators, school leaders, like as you're walking into your classrooms, have those listening ears on for ways that students are showing their mathematical brilliance in a variety of ways and support teachers in starting to celebrate those out loud in your class. So hopefully you're hearing students being mathematical and it's being like publicly celebrated. Gigi, do you have one final lesson? I do. I think there's two things I would say to, to school leaders. The first would be know your students, which is similar to what Sarah said, but every student is coming into the math classroom with some baggage, whatever that may be. And that is absolutely going to affect the way that they learn and they interact with their peers and they interact with the teacher. And personalizing 
education as best as possible to each individual student makes it so much more powerful and applicable to that student. So I would say that is number one. And number two, I would say buy dear math because it's pretty good and it might really help you out. Excellent. Well, to that point, listeners, we are going to put the information in the show notes about Dear Math and where you can find it from Times 10 Publications. Please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews. And if you're so inclined, you can even give us a good rating, which helps us and helps other educators learn about the show and learn what our guests have to share. Please do visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Sarah Strong and Gigi Butterfield, thank you so much for being on The Authority. Thank you happiness. This podcast was edited at the Davis Catalyst Center by Ryan Kai Griffiths. Album cover art was made by Natalie Harris. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.